Good morning. We're going to be reading the first 11 verses from 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 1. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Odom, Obed-Odom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Odom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Well, thank you very much, Elias, and thank you, Luke, and uh, let me add my welcome. The Bible gives us many attributes and qualities to help us understand the character and nature of God. God is loving, God is gracious, God is powerful, God is just, God is holy. We could go on. These attributes or characteristics of God are good and right and true and biblical, and they're also comforting, aren't they? These truths should make us glad that we live in a world that is ruled by such a God that he is not capricious or cruel or sadistic or self-serving. He is holy and thoroughly good. But there is another truth about God that the Bible teaches, another characteristic of God that is equally right and true and biblical, but one that we are probably less willing to think about. It's a characteristic of God that the Bible has a great deal to say about, but one that makes us uncomfortable. It is that God is also dangerous. God is dangerous. This uncomfortable truth about God was famously expressed by C.S. Lewis, who portrayed Jesus as the lion in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. You may remember early on in the story, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have been describing Aslan to the children. And Mrs. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either braver than most or else just silly. So the children ask rather nervously, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? 
Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Well, that is what we're going to see this morning in the first half of this rather strange and I'm sure you'll agree, slightly remote passage, at first at least, in the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, that God is both dangerous and good, and you can't have one without the other. In fact, it is this tension, if you look at the passage with me now, that is expressed in David's question in verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me, he says. It's the same question that had been asked before. The last time the ark was mentioned in 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? 1 Samuel 6, 20. And it's a question that David will come to ponder more deeply in Psalm 24, verse 3, possibly reflecting on this chapter. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And all of these questions express this uncomfortable tension that we're going to be grappling with this morning, that God is both dangerous and good, and you can't have one without the other. And grappling with this is going to do two things for us this morning. Firstly, it's going to challenge our presumption and our casual attitudes to God. It's going to challenge our presumption and our casual attitudes to God. The lesson that David and the Israelites learn in 2 Samuel 6 is that having a casual attitude to God is the most foolish way to live. What does this look like? Well, at a basic level, it is a denial of God's holy revulsion at human sin. Thinking that we can live in God's world and do whatever we like and he will never do anything about it. That he will never hold us accountable. It's a denial of judgment. A denial of the existence of hell. It's ultimately a recreation of the God of the Bible, a God of holy wrath, into a tolerant, benevolent, sort of Father Christmas figure who's there when we need him. I don't know if you saw Diego Maradona talking about God uh, this week, well, a, a film clip of him talking about God, referring to him as the man upstairs who keeps on giving me opportunities. That's how so many people view God. And some people have tried to remove any idea of sin or God's anger from Christian theology altogether. If you want to sum up the the project known as liberalism, uh, right up until the 1960s, you could say that this is what liberalism was trying to do, to remove the teeth from the lion. As someone once put it, it ended up with a gospel like this, a God without wrath brings people without sin into a kingdom without judgment to a Christ without a cross. It removes the teeth from the lion. After all, what else is hell but the unmediated wrath of God, bursting out in holy fire with no protection? And what else is a Christian believer than someone who has come to the place where wrath and mercy meet and in coming to Christ comes safely into God's blessing? But this casual attitude of God uh, towards God also creeps into the Christian life in more subtle ways, even among people who take God seriously. Think, for example, of the person who is happy to treat God as God when life goes smoothly, to thank God for the good things he gives us when he showers us with his blessings, to come and sing and praise God in church when we're allowed. And yet, in the hard times... How quick that person is to demand an explanation. When suffering comes to question God's motives or his purposes, 
to even doubt his goodness. As if God somehow existed for our benefit rather than we existing for his. As if he were accountable to us rather than we being accountable to him. And you see it in the lightweight, individualistic form of Christianity that has been dubbed moralistic, therapeutic deism, in which God is there to fulfill my needs and potential, like the genie in the lamp. He's part of my spiritual toolbox. He's part of my self-realization at the top of that pyramid of human needs. He comes out when I want him to fight my battles, rather than being the person at the center of the universe who Joe mentioned earlier in Isaiah 6, who is worthy of worship, to whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And one who holds a view of God like that would never say with Isaiah, woe to me, I am ruined. Now this passage is going to challenge such casual attitudes towards God. It's going to remind us that God cannot be domesticated. He cannot be tamed. He cannot be used or manipulated. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us an explanation. God is dangerous. But the second thing we're going to see in this passage is that also paradoxically, this gives us great confidence. Because we're going to see it's the very dangerousness of God that in a strange kind of way makes his goodness worth knowing. So if you look at the passage again, you can see this in the contrast between the two halves of the chapter. In the passage we're going to look at this week, David dances and rejoices. He also dances and rejoices next week. But next week we'll see a change. We'll see a rejoicing with joy and humility because of the lesson he's learned in the first half. As he would come to put it in Psalm 2, he has learned to fear the Lord and rejoice with trembling. See, without the danger of God, who hates sin, there can be no goodness. There can be no grace, no gospel worth knowing, no God worth having. Because Diego Maradona's old man with a beard cannot and will not call down holy fire to cleanse the world of evil. Such a God cares nothing for justice, for righteousness, for goodness, and therefore he knows nothing of love. Such a casual view of God is foolish and deadly. And yet here is the good news this morning, that that God has provided a way, the God who is dangerous, has provided a way for us to approach him in utter safety so that we can draw near with confidence to the most holy place. Well, if you'd like to make sure you've got your passage open and an outline that's available uh, on the webpage, uh, we're going to make a start. And I might just uh, mention this week, this is the last time we're going to meet, meeting as one meeting for a while, and so I hope you don't mind, but I've taken the opportunity just to slow down a little bit. Uh, someone said last week, why are you rushing? None of us have got anything else to do on Sunday morning. Why don't you just let us uh, enjoy God's word a bit longer? So I'm going to uh, do just that. And we're going to look at it under three headings, the plan, the presumption, and the surprise at the end, the Philistine. Well, let's turn then to the plan in verses 1 to 5. 
And have a look at verses 1 and 2. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now this whole chapter of 2 Samuel 6 concerns the bringing up of this wooden box known as the Ark of the Covenant back from long-term storage into Jerusalem, the newly established city of David. There are two attempts. The first attempt, which we're looking at this morning, fails. The second attempt, which we come to next week, succeeds. But in order to learn the lessons from both parts of the chapter, we need to grasp what is meant by this Ark and what a supremely significant moment this is in the unfolding story of God's kingdom. There are two major clues in these first two verses. The first is to notice what David does. In verse 1, we're told that he begins by gathering a huge army. Those phrases, chosen men and brought together, are both military words, and 30,000 are 10 times the number that Saul previously gathered for his wars. So the chapter begins with a sense that David is mustering his troops and it very much looks like he's going to war. Except for as you read on, you realize he is not. If you glance back to the last verse of chapter 5, you'll remember that he doesn't need to go to war because he's already defeated Israel's great enemy, the Philistines. David's rule is now uncontested, and he can do whatever he wants. In fact, the passage has more of a feeling of a national party rather than a nation at war. Have a look at verse 2, the phrase, all his men, and in verse 5, the whole house of Israel, tells you that this is a moment of coming together, not a moment for fighting, It's actually a symbolic historical moment of a nation at peace, united in celebration. Well, what are they celebrating? What is such a big deal about heading down to this place called Bala in Judah and picking up a wooden box? Well, that brings us to the second clue of what is going on, which is how how the wooden box is described. Look at it closely with me in verse 2. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Let's spend a little bit of time unpacking that verse. Uh, What do you know about the ark? Well, the ark, as you may know from the 1981 film uh, by Steven Spielberg, and perhaps even better from the book of Exodus, is a large chest made of acacia wood covered in gold containing two stone tablets, the two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. It also contains a slightly strange mix of objects, Aaron's rod that is miraculously budded, and a sample of the miraculous bread called manna, this bread that never goes off that had kept the Israelites alive for their 40 years in the promised land. And so the ark is like one of those time capsules that people bury today because it contains memorabilia of God's faithfulness to them as he rescued them from slavery and took them into the promised land. So the contents of the ark are like a kind of a a visual sort of story of the journey so far. That's what's inside the ark. But if you look at verse 2, you'll see that there are some other details we need to appreciate captured by that name that the ark is given, the most elaborate name that the ark is given. And there are three details. 
which I've put on the sheet as kingship, relationship, and a question. Kingship, relationship, and a question. Well, firstly, the ark symbolizes the kingship of God. If you've got a very good memory, and you were here when we started looking at 1 Samuel, you may remember that the last time the ark was mentioned in the story, other than in passing, <clears throat> was way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 to 7, and it was just before Israel had asked for a king to lead them. You may remember also that this was not a happy time for Israel. And the ark was toing and froing between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines had just captured the ark in chapter 4 in this humiliating defeat, which raised the question, or the comment, sorry, the glory has departed from Israel. The ark then causes all sorts of trouble for the Philistines, so the Philistines send it back as soon as they can. And in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, there are all sorts of parallels between that account and this one. The Philistines send it back on a new cart. God strikes down 70 Israelites because they looked into the ark, prompting that question, who can stand in the presence of God? Because no one really knows what to do with this ark, it ends up in kind of cold storage, gathering dust for 70 years, Israel then asks for a king to lead them, to which Samuel replies, God is already your king. He is the Lord Almighty. In other words, Samuel says you don't need a king because the Lord Almighty, that is the Lord of armies, is the one who will fight your battles for you. He will defeat your enemies. He will sweep away the evil from the promised land. He will cleanse it and renew it and bring it back to the place that it once was in the Garden of Eden. Well, that moment then, following immediately from David's own enthronement as king, represents the return of Israel's true king, the Lord himself in power and glory. So that's the first clue to the significance of this moment. The ark coming to Jerusalem symbolizes God himself taking up his reign over the land. But secondly, as well as symbolizing God's divine kingship, the title of the ark also tells us about his intended relationship with his people. The name, that is Yahweh, the Lord, is the name he gave Moses before the Exodus, reminding us that he is a God who is not only sovereign in this kind of raw power, but he also reveals himself. He also descends and, 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 and condescends to reveal his character and his glory to his people. And he's a God who makes a covenant with his people, which is why it is usually known as the Ark of the Covenant, because it represents God's promise to be with his people and the people's obligations to obey him. And that's why the long silence regarding the Ark under Saul is probably the biggest failure of his reign. And it will be the crowning achievement of David's if he can get it back to Jerusalem. God's whole purpose, remember, was to gather his people to himself in order to reign over them and in order for them to worship him. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 12. You'll cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and he'll give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place your Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name there you are to bring everything I command you. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons, your daughters, your maidservants, your manservants, and the Levites from your towns. See, that was the promise. 
that when the ark returned and settled in the land, that was when the party could begin because God was ruling over his people in relationship with them. And this explains the atmosphere of celebration and joy in both halves of the chapter. Here is the long-time promise coming to fulfillment. God the King is coming to dwell with his people. But that, of course, raises a question, thirdly, for the future. Because here we have two unreconcilable truths. The God of awesome holiness and power is the king. How can he dwell with his people? How can this great promise come true? How can we come back to the Garden of Eden where God walked and talked with his people in the cool of the day? Or as David says, how can the ark of God ever come to me? Or in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Or in Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And it's important to see before we move on, why that question matters for us too. In fact, it matters for the entire world. See, the title of the ark, if you look at it again in verse 2, reminds us that God is symbolically enthroned between the cherubim, but he's not really enthroned there on the ark. This is a, a symbol of God's reign from heaven, which is why the ark is sometimes known as his footstool. He reigns in heaven with his, earth, his feet on the earth. And in case anyone ever dared to imagine that God was somehow contained within that box like the genie of Aladdin's lamp. Or if anyone dared to imagine that you could use him or manipulate him and kind of use the ark as some kind of lucky charm. That name is a reminder that this is the God of the universe. He's enthroned in heaven. The earth is his footstool. How can such a God dwell on earth? How can heaven and earth be united again? How can sinful people come into relationship without being destroyed? Can I take a moment to ask, do you sense the question? Do you feel the tension? How can the promise blessing of God that will one day burst out from the ark, from the tabernacle, from the temple, from Jerusalem to the promised land so that the glory of God will fill the land. How can that happen without destroying everyone and everything in its wake? That is the question that is raised. And we need to feel the tension. We need to feel the significance of it. How can we face the future where we will meet this God and face him in all his holy power and glory and might without being consumed? Well, that is the question that is raised. It will not be answered for another thousand years from this point in 2 Samuel 6. But I suspect this is not the question on David's mind this day. Instead, as he leads the crowds down to the house of Abinadab to put the ark on a cart and bring it back to Jerusalem. No, he's not thinking about that tension. He is thinking only about the fulfillment of the promise, the moment of celebration, the moment the king at last comes to Jerusalem. Verse 5, 
David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and sistrums and cymbals. This was before coronavirus. No masks, no social distancing, singing at the top of their voices. The celebration that is captured here is one of great joy, isn't it? And laughter and relief because of everything the ark symbolises. Points them back to all that God has done for them. How he's kept them safe. How he's fed them. Protected them through the promised land. Brought them to this point. Destroyed their enemies. How this great kingdom promise is now going to come true. And God himself will be in their midst. Well that's the plan. That's what's on David's heart at this moment. But before the plan can become a reality a huge problem must be resolved. And that brings us to our second point, the presumption in verses six to nine. Now, the next few verses are a brilliant example of the skillful restraint of this narrator. Immediately after that wonderful, joyful climax, something truly shocking and appalling happens, something totally unexpected that stops the party in its tracks. And yet the narrator refrains from answering our questions or giving us explanations. He simply tells us about this tragedy that happens and then he gives us one reaction to it. So look with me then at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. If you'd been there, and this certainly reads like an eyewitness account, What would you have made of this little incident? We're told that Abinadab's house is on a hill. Perhaps that detail is there to remind us that this is a tricky manoeuvre for this large, cumbersome wooden box. We're told that, just as the Philistines did in chapter 6 when they returned the ark to Israel, that they'd gone to the trouble of building a new cart in order not to contaminate the ark with the previously used cart. And we're told that the sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio were there guiding the ark, presumably with great care. And so alongside the celebration, there is a picture of reverence and care. But now they come to the threshing floor of Nacon. And perhaps there's a little dip or rut in the road. and The oxen stumble. The ark slips And Uzzah, who happens to be there, does the most natural and instinctive thing, as if by impulse, a well-intentioned, well-meaning action, something probably any one of us would have done, to stop the precious cargo from falling to the ground and spilling out its contents, he simply puts a hand to steady the ark. It's such a reasonable thing to do. Something any one of us would have done if we'd been in that situation, I'm sure. And so our sympathy is with Uzzah. And our questions are directed towards God. Verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. The songs have stopped. There is a dreadful silence. And in the silence, an absence of answers. There is a partial answer. 
It's worth knowing that while it looks very shocking, none of this had happened without warning. And Uzzah and the others there that, that day are perhaps not quite as innocent as they may first appear. Back in Numbers 4 on Exodus 25, and I'll put the verses on the, uh, the sheet if you want to look them up later, God had given clear instructions through Moses as to how the ark was to be transported. Before the priest could move the ark, it was supposed to be covered with a curtain and then a special leather covering. And the ark was not to be carried on a cart, but it actually had gold rings built into it through which wooden poles were placed so that the priests could carry it on their shoulders, presumably to prevent this kind of thing happening. And in Numbers 4.20, God said, anybody who looks into the ark would die. And this is why 70 died back in 1 Samuel 6. And it's these details that David himself refers to in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 15 verse 13, when he says, looking back on this, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of it about how to do it in the prescribed way. In other words, we are looking here not only at a little simple accident of Uzzah, but we're looking at a whole act of presumption of David and the whole house of Israel. So they hadn't done things as God had already told them to do them. They hadn't followed the letter of the law. They hadn't taken God's instructions seriously. Now they were very excited to be getting the ark back. They weren't treating the ark as the Philistines did, as some kind of lucky charm. They wanted God to be king over them. They wanted his glory to fill the land. They wanted to worship him as God. But there was just a little bit of a hint that they were treating him casually that they were doing things on their terms, that God was somehow something they could control, that somehow he existed for their benefit. They had reduced God a little bit, made him a little bit smaller, forgetting that this was just his footstool, that he is the God who rules the universe. They were treating God casually. Well, all of that is true, but it's important to notice that the narrator doesn't bring these details here to justify God's action. He doesn't answer the question, why? He doesn't give us a response to David's anger. He doesn't meet our objections. He allows God to be God. Because God, after all, doesn't owe us an explanation for his behavior. He's not bound by our rules or our morality. He doesn't hold himself accountable to us. He is God. He is dangerous. Well, we're given one reaction, which is David's in verses 8 and 9. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? The Lord's anger is met with David's anger. Anger at the situation. No doubt David is frustrated that his plans have come to nothing. Once again, he cannot get the ark into Jerusalem. Maybe there is a note of the objection to the severity of God's act. But there is also fear, we are told. Here is God's king learning to take God seriously. 
something the Bible will teach us, is the beginning of wisdom. Notice the name change of the place. It captures this event for posterity because the lesson this day will never be forgotten. In 520, he renamed the place Baal Perazim because there the Lord had broken out against his enemies, the Philistines. But now, here, God has broken out against his own people, reminding them that God does not belong to them. He can destroy the Philistines. He can destroy his own people. There is a problem to be overcome. No wonder David now asks this all-important question. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Who can stand in the presence of this holy God? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? I hope you feel the weight of that question. But before we come to the answer, we come now to a very surprising conclusion to this story. The Philistine in verses 10 and 11. In fact, there are two surprises here, what David does and what God does. Firstly, notice what David does, verse 10. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David set out, remember, to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And with it, the climactic high point of the kingdom so far. That attempt has failed. And so you can see the conundrum that David is grappling with here. What do you do with this ark? What do you do with it? You can't live without it. But you can't live with it. It's the same conundrum all of us face when it comes to God. You can't live without God, but you can't live with him either. And so he puts the whole thing on hold. He sends the ark back into cold storage until he can work out what to do next. But the surprise is where he takes it. He leaves it with this man Obed-Edom, the Gittite. What is so surprising about that? Well, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, is a Gentile. Not just a Gentile, but a Philistine. Not just a Philistine, but a Philistine from the town of Gath the same town as Goliath. This is what Gittite means. Lancastrian is someone from Lancaster. A Kendalian is someone from Kendall. Liverpudlian is someone from Liverpool. Gittite is someone from Gath. Now you know. Now this is very unexpected. So much so that many Bible scholars are baffled by this or even in denial of it. In the course of a normal week of sermon prep, I'll usually read seven or eight commentaries to check my understanding of the passage and to expand it. In my initial work on this passage, I noted with interest and puzzlement that this chap must be a Philistine. And then I went to the commentaries to see what they would make of it. And the first few commentaries I read acknowledged this as a problem. Why would David entrust the ark to a Philistine? And many of those commentaries then went on to resolve the problem by denying that he was a Philistine, appealing to some obscure place names not mentioned in the Bible that sound a bit like Gath. So that Obadidim the Gittite can come from a place in Israel that sounds a little bit like Gath, it solves the problem. But I want to tell you that Obadidim the Gittite is as Philistine as they come. 
His name, which the narrative stresses by repetition, means servant of the god Edom, not a popular name with Jewish parents at the time. He is like the other Gittites mentioned in 2 Samuel 15, who have come over from de- to David, now fighting in his army from the famous Philistine city of Gath, the same place as Goliath. So claiming that Obed-Edom the Gittite is Jewish is a bit like cl- claiming that Hamish MacDougall from Ar- Argyll, you know, the one with red hair who tosses his caber in his spare time, lives in a wee cottage by the sea and eats haggis sandwiches for lunch, is an Englishman from Surrey. Apologies for the stereotype, but you get the point. This man is a Philistine. Now, we're not told why David took the ark to Obed-Edom, the Gittite's house. Maybe it was the closest house to the path. Or maybe no one in Israel was prepared to have this dangerous box in their garden shed. But the second surprise, and the more important one, is what God does. And I want you to notice that the result of this decision is as spectacular as the terrible tragedy that we've just witnessed. Look at verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Once more, the narrator reminds us that Obed-Edom is a Gittite. Yes, him from Gath. And now we see something else. We've seen death come from the ark. We've seen wrath come from the ark. But now we see blessing burst forth from the ark of the covenant. This is the same God whose wrath flared up without explanation on Uzzah. And now with no explanation, God's blessing comes upon the Philistine. How did God bless Obed-Edom the Gittite. Well, the text doesn't tell us in what way those three months looked like a blessing. I suspect one aspect was his wife getting pregnant. In 1 Chronicles 15, 18, he is listed as one of the Levites who served as a gatekeeper for the ark, an incredibly rare privilege for a Gentile. Then in 1 Chronicles 26, verses 4 to 8, we get a little inkling of what this blessing looked like. And it's in terms of the greatest Old Testament blessing of all. Look at it with me on the screen. Obed-Edom also had sons. Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehozabad the second, Joah the third, Sacha the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Puteli the eighth, for God had blessed Obed-Edom. His son Shemaiah also had sons, who were leaders in their father's family because they were very capable men. The sons of Shemaiah, Othni, Raphael, Obed, Elzabad, his relatives Elihu and Samachiah were also able men. All these were descendants of Obed-Edom. They and their sons and their relatives were capable men and with the strength to do the work, descendants of Obed-Edom, 62 in all. Here is the God of reversals at work. An Israelite whose job was to attend the ark gets struck down and God does not have any reason to explain himself. A foreigner who had no claim on God is blessed beyond imagination and God does not need to explain that either. Here is a God who blesses 
as well as curses. Here is the God who cannot be put into a box. Here is a God who does not exist for our benefit, who owes us nothing. Here is a God enthroned in heaven who does whatever he likes. Remember Hannah in her prophetic theme tune of 1 Samuel 2, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Well, we're going to conclude there and leave David for another week. And as we leave him, notice that three months pass in the narrative. I want you to imagine what is going through David's mind at this time. It's the question raised by the tension of the Ark of the Covenant. God's dangerous power, his kingship that we so desperately need and his intended relationship with his people. How do we bring those two things together? How do we get the power of God and the blessing of God? How do we live with this God of awesome power and holiness when his wrath is so terrible and yet his blessing so great? Well, as I said before, it will take a thousand years before the answer to that question is fully revealed. And it will be resolved, it will be revealed, not in a great stone temple, nor in the sacrifice of animals, but in the one place on earth where God's dangerous power and his awesome goodness meet in the death of Jesus on the cross. It is when Jesus, the innocent Son of God, dies on the cross that God's terrifying, terrible wrath for all the sins of humanity break out against him and so he absorbs it. I've used this illustration before, but it's a very helpful one, I think. In places prone to bushfires like Australia and California, they practice a fire management technique called backburning. You burn a patch of ground to get rid of all the fuel so when the fire comes, it can't touch that place. And we lived in Australia for a while and we heard a, a family tell their story of having their surroundings burnt by the fire brigade. And so when the bushfire came, the fire came right up to their plot, burnt all around them into the night, a terrifying sight. But they stayed in their home, completely safe, because they couldn't be touched, because the fire had already done its work. It was challenging and frightening, but they stayed in their home with total confidence because fire can't burn what's already been burnt. And it's a helpful illustration of what happens when Jesus dies on the cross, because when he dies, the white hot fire of God's anger for all the filth of the world's sin is poured out on him, inundates him, consumes him. And Jesus is consumed so that we can be safe. So if we come to that place, the place where the wrath of God has already been absorbed, we'll be safe. And this is the lesson this morning. Who can stand? in the presence of this holy God. The only safe place to stand is where the anger of God has burnt and there is no more sin and that place is the Lord Jesus Christ. How may the ark ever come to me, David says? 
Well, the final answer is that the ark comes to us in the form of a man, the man Jesus Christ, who takes the death we deserve so God's blessing can at last burst out and fill the world. God is a God of power and might and awesome holiness. But he's also dangerous. As Mr. Beaver said, he is also good. And the paradox is, the one place to run to, the place of safety, is God himself. Well, let's pray now that we will respond rightly to such a God. I'll give you a moment to pause and gather your thoughts and then I'm going to read a few verses and then lead us in prayer. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for any time we've treated you casually, for thinking that you exist to serve us rather than that we exist to serve you, for demanding explanations and answers, for forgetting that you are God and putting ourselves in your place. We thank you for your awesome, holy power that made the world and will one day cleanse a world of sin. Thank you that in your goodness, your wrath broke out against Jesus so that we may stand by faith in your presence, sheltered by his blood. Help us to draw near to you in the full assurance of that faith and to rejoice with trembling. Amen.